ever heard of William Wilberforce? You may have. It's a great name. I don't know any Wilberforces. He was a British parliamentarian born in 1759, uh, and he died in 1833. He first ran for a seat in parliament at, in 1780 at the age of 20. It's said that he actually spent the equivalent of $500,000 of his own money trying to win that seat. He later admitted that even though he became member of parliament at age 20, he pretty much did nothing his first few years. That's how government goes sometimes, isn't it? However, God put him there. And he knew that God had put him there. Three years after he first got into, uh, into parliament, he became a Christian. He came to trust in Christ. He believed the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ came to save sinners and he was converted. And so he had this new love for Christ and a new love for people and God put on him a new mission, a new passion that was so entrenched in British life that most people looked at this thing and they said, this will never be undone, that what it is today, it will always be. And so from the day, that day forward, Wilberforce spent his life working towards the abolition of the British slave trade. He said of his change of heart, so enormous, so dreadful, so irremediable did the trade's wickedness appear that my own mind was completely made up for abolition. Let the consequences be what they would. I, from that time forward, determined that I would never rest until I had effected its abolition. So by 1789, three years after his conversion, Wilberforce had introduced 12 different bills seeking the end of this evil practice. All of them, all 12 of those bills were struck down. After those 12, he introduced further bills toward its abolition. Listen to this. He had introduced a bill in 1791, 1792, 93, 97, 98, 99, 1804, and 1805, all of them were defeated. He was vilified by his opponents. He was left by numerous friends, and all the while he suffered from severe health issues, and yet he continued to fight that fight. He never doubted the rightness of his cause, never doubted the righteousness of what he was doing. And finally, on February 24th, 1807, at 4 a.m. in the morning, after 20 years of battling, the African slave trade in Britain was declared illegal. It's said that upon its passing, he falls down into his seat. He puts his hands over his face and he just weeps. And everybody applauded. Even those who voted against it. Why? Because they saw the fight that he put forth, the perseverance he continued in. And so he sat there weeping and bowing his head in thanksgiving to his Lord. It makes you wonder, I wonder how many of his adversaries, that those who fought to keep slavery legal there in, in, in England were confessed Christians. I wonder how many of those who named the name of Christ voted against abolition. And I wonder how many of them used the teaching of Paul to bolster their arguments. 
It's a question worth asking. Are the critics of the Bible right to say that the Bible never condemns slavery? When we're honest, that question needs to be asked. And so let's look together at 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we're going to read starting at verse 1. Paul writes, by inspiration of the Spirit of God, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants, as slaves, regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Let's pray. Father, we pray now for wisdom and clarity, for open eyes, for open ears, for open minds and open hearts. We can't live on bread alone. We live by your word. And we need this word today. Lord, we need your word today. We need you to speak to us. And so we ask that you would. We ask that your goodness would pursue us today. That if there are any here today who don't know you, may today be the day of their salvation. May they see Jesus as their Savior and as their Lord. May they trust in him and be made right with you. Father, for those of us who are struggling, who are fighting the fight of faith and it just seems like we are getting beaten up and beaten down. Lord, renew our strength today. Lord, lead us to worship as we see your goodness. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Paul says to Timothy, here's what you need to teach your church about slavery. And he never says it's bad. He never says to the slavers who might have been in the congregation, hey, you should stop doing that. At no point does there seem to be a condemnation of it at all. Why? Well, here's the answer. When you and I think of slavery, we think of slavery that was here in America, that was over in the British forms, this, this horrible racially defined system where one person owned another as if they were property and they could do with their property whatever they wanted. They could work them endlessly, they could beat them, they could even kill them if they desired to do so because they were simply property. That's the kind of slavery with which we are familiar. Yet when the Bible speaks of slavery, we make the mistake of thinking that that's what they were dealing with and that's what they were talking about. However, when the New Testament speaks of slavery, it's actually talking about contracted service, that members of society would sell themselves to the service of someone else so that their debts could be paid so that their lives could be lived, so that they could meet the needs that they had. So these men and women would go work for others in order to be able to pay their bills and make a living. The laborer was called a slave or a bondservant. The manager was called a master. And this type of service was actually the primary means of economy in biblical times. It was not based on race. It was not based on superiority. Rather, those who needed money worked for those who had labor needs. Paul doesn't address slavery in this instance because there was nothing wrong with their view of slavery. 
In fact, most of us either have done or we currently do the exact same thing today. We have bills, we have debts, we must make a living, so we essentially give our lives to working for another person in order to earn money. Does it feel like slavery sometimes? Indeed it does. But if that's what you mean by slavery, then working for money, then no, the Bible does not condemn that, and it shouldn't. However, if you're talking about the American or the British form of slavery, then I would point you to a host of texts that just that, that, that say something like this. Of course, the Bible condemns that. We read this, that all men and all women are created in the image of God, and for that reason, they have incredible value that no one made in the image of God should be looked down upon or treated as nothing, nor should they be treated as property. The Bible tells us that every single person finds their origin in the first man, Adam. Essentially, we're all related anyways. We read texts like, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that there is no one righteous, no, not one. All stand condemned. Why does that matter? Because not a single person in here is better than another. That we were all in desperate need of a savior, of an outside, an alien salvation that would come to us from a different person. We read verses like in Revelation that speak of God sending his son so that one day, what we just sang, that people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation would be gathered together and redeemed, standing around the throne of God and worshiping him. We read about how when someone looks down on another, they are quickly corrected. There's a call to repentance even in the case of Peter when Peter pulls away from the Gentiles because he doesn't want the Jews from Jerusalem seeing him hang out with them and Paul chastises him for it. If you read the Bible and you come away with it saying that it never condemns slavery or it never condemns ethnocentric pride, then you've missed the point. Of course it does. It regularly does. But that's not what we're dealing with here. So Paul writes to Timothy and he writes to the church at Ephesus and he's talking about slavery, but what we should be seeing when he's talking about this is not so much slavery, but labor. Not so much masters, but managers, bosses. Not so much slaves, but employees. Why do we say all that? Because we need to know it, and we need to know that this applies to us today. That what Paul's doing right here is he's telling you what it looks like as a faithful Christian to be a laborer, to be a worker in the world, but he's also telling you, if you are a manager, this is what you should be like. This is how you should live. So if you would, look with me at verse one. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. There's no master that should not be respected. Remember, he's writing to a church, to Christian slaves, to Christian workers, and he's telling them, and he's telling us, if you are in this situation, if you work for a master or a boss or a manager, you should consider them worthy of all honor. But you don't know my boss. 
doesn't matter. Consider them worthy of honor. Well, I give him some honor, but all honor. Consider them worthy. And look, look at the reason that he gives. We're to do this so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. That Paul's writing to these working church members and he's saying, listen, how you live and how you work speaks to the name of God. That how you live each day says something about the gospel. So when you work for someone, go overboard with respect. Consider them worthy, not just of some honor, but of all honor. That this isn't just about when you talk to them or how you talk to them. It's about how you work, about how you do your tasks, even when they're not around. Look, yeah, respect them with your words. Respect them with your obedience. But also respect them with the quality of your work because how you work makes claims about God. Just like when you see my children. When you see my children, let's say that they are doing good, good things, that they are behaving, they're, 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 they're living in a way that you would think that they should. You would say, oh, okay, well, they must be doing a good job parenting them. But let's say they're not. Let's say they're not behaving in a way that is, is, is accurate or admirable, that they are acting like true PKs true pastor kids, does that make you say, huh, what's going on at their house? It does, doesn't it? Rightly or wrongly, this is the way we do it. That we can look at children or we'll often look at children and say, oh, okay, I'm gonna make some assumptions about their father, about their mother, about their raising, about their home. This is how we do it. And this is what Paul is saying here. You are children of God. That Christians, you are sons and daughters of God. And because that's who you are, the way you work, the way you treat your boss, your manager, the way you speak to and about others speaks about your father in heaven. It says something about him. This is a means of evangelism. That your, your, your focus and your attitude and your behavior either speaks rightly about God, about what he's like, or it doesn't. Paul's saying that, look, your labor, your occupation, your job, your work has eternal significance because it can be done in such a way that the name of the Father and the gospel of his Son is exalted. So work in such a way that the gospel is shown to be true and desirable. Work with the goal of the father being honored in your job. Now, let's say your boss is a scoundrel. Let's say he's a wretch, that he treats you poorly, he withholds from you, he shows partiality to others, that by all accounts, he is your enemy. Then what, Christian? What are you to do? You are to love your enemy. You are to do good to those who hate you. You're to bless those who curse you. You show honor still so that the name of Christ and the gospel is seen. Think about Jesus. Think about what his life was like. When he was reviled, what do we, say? What do we see? He did not revile in return. 
When he was mocked and spit upon, what did he do? He prayed for his accusers. When he gave his life, he gave his life for the very ones who sought to take it from him. This is why when you show honor, you're showing Christ. When you're you're ignoring and putting to the side the rebukes, the wrongs, you're doing what Christ has done. You're showing people what he's like and what he's done. So you're in the midst, let's say you're in the midst of of a fallen workplace among people who don't know the Lord, don't honor the Lord, under a boss, a manager who does not know the Lord. Might it be that your response to him is the means by which God is going to save them? How many of you, you have family members that you know you will never reach with the gospel, that you know you've tried and it just seems like a prophet is not welcome in his hometown or among his own family? Even Jesus said that. And so what you've started doing is praying, God, bring believers around them, put believers around them. How do you not know, Christian, that your unbelieving boss, your unbelieving co-workers, family, and friends aren't praying the same thing, and you are the answer to that prayer, that you are the Christian that God has sovereignly put in their life, and so he's calling you, hey, look, treat them with all honor, because that right there is the means by which I'm answering their prayers. That right there is the means by which I'm bringing this unbelieving boss, this unbelieving coworker to faith in Christ. It's how he works so often. Now let's speak to the masters for a moment, if we can. To you in the room, who are the bosses? You are the ones with employees under you. You are the ones under whom people work. What do you do when you are the boss? When people work for you, you do the same thing. You treat them with all honor and all dignity. Why? Because no matter who it is, they are people who are made in what? The image of God. They're made in his image. They are worthy of respect because of this. So when you go to the bank and you're trying to put in money, you have someone working for you in order to pay their bills. Today, let's say you're going to leave this church and you're going to go to a restaurant and some poor younger man, younger woman is gonna come to your table and they just hate working on Sundays. Why? How many, how many wait staff you ever talked to and say, what's the worst day to work? Have you ever heard any answer besides what? Church Sunday. Why? Because the people in suits, the people dressed up, you can't please them. They're mean. They put you down and they're chintzy. They don't even tip you. Talk to them. This is how it works. But what have we got there? We got this master-servant dynamic. That in that situation, you've got someone coming to you, working for you so that they can make a living, so that they can pay their bills. And what do we often do? We live and we act and we treat them in such a way that reviles the Lord, that reviles the teaching we just sat under. 
that Wilberforce saw his position as given by God's providence, that he was in parliament because God had a plan for him there. He said this, my walk is a public one. My business is in the world and I must mix in the assemblies of men or quit the post which providence seems to have assigned me. In Esther 4, Mordecai tells Esther that God put her in a position as queen for such a time as this, that he had a purpose for her being right there, right then. We see the same thing in the life of Joseph in Egypt. God's sovereignty placed him exactly where he needed to be so that he might deliver his family. Do you think that who you answer to, who you work for, Even what waiter or waitress comes to your table is an accident. Do you think that God cares for every single detail in this world except for that one? What about you students? Do you think your teacher or your professor is just some random happenstance? What about your seat in that class by that student? It might be that God has put you just right there so that as they see you, they see him. We're told, brothers and sisters, whatever you do, do all to the what? To the glory of God. Be it job, be it school, do it all to the glory of God. So yes, workers, pray for your work. Not only that it will provide for you or for your family or that you'll be able to advance in it. Pray that God would use you to bring about the salvation of your coworkers, to bring about the success of your company. Now, what about if your master or your boss is a Christian? What about them? Well, as a worker, you're not to show them less respect. You're actually to serve them even better. Why? Because not only are they your bosses, not only are they your masters, but they are beloved brothers. They are those with whom you will spend all eternity with. And so you're to seek their good. You're to seek their best by your work and by your words. You don't say, oh, he's a Christian, so I will be favored. I can get away with this. I can get away with that. I don't have to do that because I'll have his ear. So I'll take this day off or I'll not work hard because he's a brother. Can this be a struggle? It actually can, can it? Uh, So before coming down to Georgia and then coming here to Mississippi, I worked in Louisville at Humana's corporate office, so an insurance company. Um, And I, I felt that pull with my boss because he and I were good friends. He wasn't a believer, but we got along great. And I could tell that even there, my friendship with him had an effect on my work for him. So we had this tendency and this temptation uh, in us to say, hey, look, it, it may cause us to slack off. And Paul says, no, 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 go the other way. That if your boss is a Christian, if he's a beloved brother, then work for his good here. Work for his good upcoming. Work for his good eternally. You remember what he said just a few chapters ago when he said this, If you don't care for your family, you're worse than a what? Than an unbeliever. And now he's saying, look, work for your believing brother. Work for Christians even more. Seek their good. Seek to care for them in the way 
that you labor. Consider it a duty and a joy to care for them. Paul ends this section with these words to Timothy, teach and urge these things. So this pastor is to teach this congregation how they are to do their job, how to labor at their work. They're to think through the implications for what it looks like, what it looks like to work for unbelievers, what it looks like to work for believers. And Timothy, as their pastor, is to take an active role even in that aspect of their lives. So let's talk about this for a moment. We used to have in our pantry a list of chores for our kids to do. So weekly chores, and they could earn money for it. Now, Team Cuthbertson recognizes local sovereignty away from child labor laws. We don't pay attention to those. And at the time, my children loved coins. So we would happily pay them in coins. No longer do they happily receive coinage. (laughs) Just doesn't work anymore. Now they receive room and board. (laughs) But still, they are expected to do work. They have chores, tasks at our house that they have to do. But it's not just that we say to them, hey, you need to do this. That's not enough. We tell them, you need to do this. And you need to do it well. And you need to do it with the right attitude that you can't just do it to the least possible expectation. No, do it right. Do it well. Do it with the right attitude. The call for workers right here in this text is not saying just do your work. It's saying do it well. Do it right. Do it with the right attitude. It's a call to obedience, but obedience isn't just checking the box of getting something done. In fact, all calls of obedience in the Bible are more than just checking a box and getting things done. When you die and stand before the Lord, and one day that will happen to every one of us, we will die unless the Lord comes back in the next few minutes or years. We will all die. We will all stand before the Lord. Now, you won't be accepted, you won't be forgiven for your work, will you? No matter how well you did it, no matter how hard you worked, you will not be made right with God by your work. You will be made right with God only by his work, only by Jesus doing what you could not do, by living the life you and I haven't lived, by dying the death you and I deserved, and by rising again three days later, conquering death, conquering sin, redeeming us as slaves to sin, right? It's not how you'll be saved. You'll only be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, by trusting in him to save you and do what you cannot do. But when you stand before God, he won't just say, well done, good and faithful servant, because you were faithful at church. You were regularly there, encouraging others, even volunteering in in, in nursery sometimes. You sang well most of the time, You even taught that one class that one time. Now, don't get me wrong. I want that. We want that. We want faithful church members. I want God, and we're praying that God will raise up faithful believers who are here for the long haul, who serve and long to encourage others, but we don't meet that much throughout the week, do we? What are we here? Four, five hours a week, tops? I know I'm here more than that but I don't think you are for the most part. 
We're four to five hours tops per week. I hope you're faithful all of those hours. But think about how often you're at work. What, 30, 40, 50 plus hours a week? I mean, think about how much more you're on the clock than you are here among the people of God. So much of your reward in heaven will be based on your faithfulness, not just here, but there. Not just in the four or five hours here, but the 30, 40, 50 hours that you're spending every week. Look, for those of you who are glad you have a job, but this job, but this boss, look, take this encouragement. I know some of you are in a place, because I've talked to you about it, where you look at your job and your boss and they just drive you crazy. Where if you could, you would be anywhere else doing anything else. But understand this, it is no accident that God this very day has brought us to this very text. Know this, that as you wake up tomorrow and you drive to work, it's not random. It's not meaningless. It's not outside of God's providence that he has you right where he wants you when he wants you. That your job is bigger than an office. It's bigger than a truck. It's bigger than a task. It's bigger than a paycheck. That God is doing something there infinitely more than all you can imagine. And in his great providence, he has you right there, right now, in the midst of it, that he has you right there as a light of the gospel of Christ to those who need to see him and be saved. So what do you do? You pray for opportunities. And then you open your eyes and you open your ears and then when suitable, you open your mouth also. That you work in a way that Christ is magnified. And that as our doctors in the congregation are doing that and our teachers in the congregation are doing that and our yard crews in the congregation are doing that, our Air Force men and women in the congregation are doing that, as First Baptist is doing that, being faithful step after step in their work, here's what we're gonna see. I believe we're gonna see the city of Columbus transformed by and for Christ, that that's the calling of the gospel. Now, many of you here are retired and you're saying, okay, what about for me? Now what? It's not over for you either. That God isn't calling you simply to rest. So what does your labor look like now? What does faithful work look like among the body of Christ here? If you're retired, consider those questions. Seek to be faithful and pour yourself into this family and beyond for the name of God and for his glory. Have you been paying attention? Are you looking, looking, looking? Are you looking at this city? Are you looking around to see what God is doing? Have you noticed that the fields are absolutely white with harvest? Have you noticed that the joy of salvation is spreading? It's there. It's here. As Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand. God's good. And he's going to use you where you are because he has mighty plans through the mundanity of just regular daily life. He will use you. Ask him to. 
Open your eyes, open your ears, and be faithful. And let's watch them work.